Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. Um, I'm joined this evening by my co-hosts, Austin and OSINT Technical, and we are joined this evening uh, by our guest. Uh, his user handle is at Ideology Wards, um, but he is also known, like myself, as John. So hopefully we're not going to get confused tonight when uh, talking as a group, um, and hopefully uh, the, the accent should be different enough that you recognise who's who. We've we've switched the ratio back up to uh, three Americans and a Brit, so that's 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 fortunately good again on our side. Yep, I am flying the Union flag with pride tonight and uh, trying <laughs> trying to keep these three in check. So, uh, John, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me tonight. Um, why don't you uh, start us off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do um, in the OSINT community? Yeah, well, um, most people will know me by my handle on Twitter, or X, as it's called now, uh, Ideology Wars. And in, in recent months, I've become more of an opinion account. But in the past, I did offer, when the Ukraine war started, which was when my account grew the most, it would have been close to 24-7, just constant updates I, um, from frontline movement. But that became a little too much with my education. So I've tapered it off back into opinion, but I'm, I'm thinking of getting back into the, uh, into the actual analysis space. We'll, we'll see how that works out. And it's, it's, it's always interesting to see kind of like who handled the absolute chaos of OSINT posting for, I, I don't know, months and months on end. And, and, and cause, cause I know a lot of people were, were, you know, pretty consistent on maintaining that kind of feed, um, at least early in the war. Um, but at, at least I know personally that maintaining that kind of output was ex- extremely draining <laughs> at at minimum. Um, and and sort of what what was your feeling on that? What how how did you really handle that early on? Well, so at the time I was finishing up my undergrad education, I was like in my last semester of undergraduate school, um, while also posting close to, I think it was, I was counting 11 hours a day average of, I would be posting every few minutes information from the front lines. And it did get to the, that was three months of that. And by the end of it, I was completely done. I actually ended up taking a multi-month hiatus from my account, um, which some of the people closer to me on the platform might recall. Uh, it, it was just too much. I have a lot of respect for people who have continued to do it, probably not at the same pace as we were doing in the beginning, but I can't imagine having continued to do it. I probably would not be sitting here today. I would have lost all interest in the field at this point. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's that need for... Uh moderation or or at least you know and it goes back to that whole being healthy and and maintaining sort of that that healthy level of uh of control and engagement um along with with other things like like managing um sensitive imagery and and i i know bellingcat has a lot of guides on that i don't think they have as much on you know what to do if you're spending you know 11 plus hours a day posting about OSINT stuff um maybe maybe they should do that we should (laughs) those those of us who are afflicted should send them instructions to do that or we can Um, send them video messages of us slowly losing our minds (laughs) oh i'm 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 sure they they already know we're losing our minds but you know I imagine that's where probably the Oryx team are at at this point, given that I think there's only four or five of them in total, and that account's been non-stop since day one, hasn't it? Yeah. Pretty pretty close to it, yeah. Um, that stuff like that's difficult. It is. It is not. It is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I know it may seem to listeners like we're kind of stalling right now, but but we are. <laughs> because we are <laughs> just just a bit because i i i know british british john is going to uh is is going to get slightly peeved if we we spend the entire episode talking again about things blowing up in russia um but you know we might as well pivot to that and 
I don't. <laughs> we kind of because we're we're filming this on what Saturday afternoon for us, Saturday evening for uh, for John, um, and there's still a bit of missing information. Currently, you know, we we well we know pretty well what happened. Um, the the effects of which are are still kind of yet to play out um mostly because the russians are probably still digging bodies up from the rubble of the black sea fleet headquarters um and and i think we can i i when exactly did the strike happen i i do not have the exact hour um off the top of my head let me i know it happened in the morning local time um but it but it was a very interesting strike in that usually when the Ukrainians target, um, and I'm, I'm kind of setting something up here. So, so everyone, <laughs> everyone let me set something up. Um, but it, really most of these strikes that the Ukrainians were performing were typically late afternoon, um, or, or late evening into, uh, a very early morning, sort of targeting areas where they knew that, there wouldn't be any people. They knew that there would be sort of isolated installations, places where, you know, there weren't exactly going to be civilian casualties. Um, but this was a pretty rare one in that it was, you know, a, a, a morning daytime strike, um, you know, on the weekend, but still very, or sorry, on a Friday, not the weekend. Um, <laughs> But but on on a weekday, you know, during during normal business hours, um, and that aspect of it is super interesting because and and what you know we've come to kind of learn at this point is that the the strike was targeting a meeting of senior Russian leadership, hmm. um, and the casualties are still unknown again because the Russians are are most likely still digging people out. Um, because the damage was was pretty severe, I think everyone can agree to that. A hundred percent. It's been interesting to sort of see the timeline of these recent strikes, right? You, if I'm recalling correctly, we're starting with the strikes on the dry dock, damaging that kilo sub and the Rapucha class landing craft. Uh, after that, you have more of a strike aimed at air defense capabilities against that S-400 battery, and now we're sort of culminating, or the point we're at, I mean, we could, uh, there's still a chance that it goes further than what we've seen, but we're, what it's culminated to thus far is sort of an attack on command structure, and obviously speculation is running wild with who was in the headquarters building of the Black Sea Fleet at the time, but if some of that, you know, speculation does pan out, that it seems like a a pretty critical strike on Russian command and control. Hmm. And I, no, absolutely. No, God. I, I don't know if it's been confirmed, but I, I know one person they were suggesting was in the building and is potentially dead is the commander of the, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which I believe was um, an Admiral Viktor Sorolov or... Sokolov. Sokolov, that's the one, yeah. I believe that's, that's the... Yeah, so which is interesting because the um, the the SBU Ukrainians Intelligence Service and, and more accurately Budinov in in a statement um, to VOA um, wasn't able to confirm anything related to the admiral, um, but he did make the claims. I think more importantly um, that the commander of Russian forces in uh, Zaporizhia Oblast and you know by extension the the main Russian commander kind of on the southern front. Um, uh, Colonel General Romanchuk and and the commander of the 200th uh, Motor Rifle Brigade, um, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Sikov, um, both of those uh, he claimed were injured in the strike, um, which would be a, a fairly heavy hit for Russian command um, on the front because I, I'm I'm assuming if there if there was a Russian meeting and there there was sort of you know. A physical in-person meeting at the headquarters. I imagine both would have been traveling with staff, um, I, I, and I imagine there would have been additional individuals there as well. Um, and one thing is, Romanchuk is known as being one of the main figures behind the Russian defensive efforts in southern Ukraine. He is 
I wouldn't call him a defensive mastermind because, you know, calling anyone a mastermind is kind of eh. But he has a significant amount of experience on the theory level. Um, uh, he he worked at w what's effectively, you know, Russians, Russia's equivalent of Pradok um, uh, in, in Eastern Russia, developing Russian theory and sort of strategy behind mainly defensive operations. Um, he's a big practitioner of Russia's defense in depth model. Um, and, and it, he seems to have made it work in, in Ukraine. Um, he seems to have been really a driving force behind the Russians actually being competent on the Southern Ukrainian front. Um, and if he was severely injured, if he was incapacitated, um, I, I imagine that's a significant blow to Russian efforts in the area. Yeah, I would certainly agree to that. And I would also say, despite the, the sheer amount of information, be it propaganda, be it opinion-based stuff on how the uh, current Ukrainian counteroffensive is going, uh, I think something that we kind of continuously harp on, and, and rightfully so, is the uh, consistent um, degradation of Russian capabilities. And I think this is another sort of instance where if this guy was incapacitated and some of his underlings were as well, if you want to talk about Russia losing more and more so the ability to respond to potential breakthroughs, then them losing, you know, top-down directives and overall planning is a, has a huge impact on that. Oh, yeah, no, I mean... I also think the the Ukrainians are sort of sort of establishing Crimea as this baseline of some place that the Russians will not be able to occupy and utilize as a defensive installation. Um, you know, the Ukrainians have made this at least clear to a degree, um, but I I really do not believe that the uh, the Russians will. I, I, will be able to continue to use Crimea. Again, one of the main reasons they wanted Sevastopol. They wanted Sevastopol as a naval base. They wanted it as a naval installation. They wanted the dry docks. They wanted the naval infrastructure there for their Black Sea fleet. What has Sevastopol done for them since the start of the war? Third is a location where they lost a submarine and landing ship in dry dock. Um, have had multiple USV strikes that they've had to deal with and significantly clamp down on port security. They've had their the headquarters of the Black Sea fleet hit multiple times one basically destroying this building um and i i mean i think at this point they they have to look at the situation in sevastopol and and now with the tacit confirmation that ukrainian you know or that ukraine is going to be acquiring additional long-range strike capabilities um i mean they 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 have to look at that and and understand that that sevastopol is is an untenable location um to to keep a fleet just just due to its its weak nature it's it's weak positioning for them they are unable as as seen today very clearly um to to defend you know their 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 holdings in the area um and if if russian sources are are to be believed which you know rybar so 50 50 chance that that anything is even slightly true um, but the Ukrainians only launched eight storm shadows and three got through, um, which is just, just an embarrassment for the, the sheer mass of, of Russian air defense in, in Crimea. I kind of want to chime in on that and tie it into the more technological side of it and the future of Sevastopol and Crimea at large, especially with confirmation that, uh, Ukraine at some point in the future is going to be receiving attackums and that's entirely up to the round they receive which i think is something people don't really talk enough about if they receive the unitary rounds so the single warhead rounds that's russia's basically gonna to have to at some point genuinely consider moving most of its assets out of sevastopol because they'll just be sitting ducks at that point if they receive cluster rounds i don't think that's going to be as big of an issue um, but that remains to be seen which round type they're going to be getting. But even Honestly, even I would, without, I would kind yeah. of, I would kind of want to see what a cluster round would do to the fleet there. I mean, if they if they isolate it to just the fleet, 
Uh, I think the maximum amount of bomblets that some of those rounds can carry is close to a thousand each. So anything in the sector that's designated will be gone effectively. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it is not a great situation for the Russians. I think at the end of the day, it is at minimum very sensitive for their capabilities, um, and and at maximum is is potentially catastrophic for what they're able to do. And I would imagine, in light of these storm shadow attacks, the uh, the Russian navy are probably very glad that. Uh, some of their more important ships like the Admiral Kuznetsov aircraft carrier aren't closer to Ukrainian territory at this moment in time. Oh, I mean, they, they, they... that the Admiral Kuznetsov is not still on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the Admiral Kuznetsov can set itself on fire very well. It, it, it doesn't really need any Ukrainian intervention. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of those things is that the, the, the Black Sea... Um, is just a, a an unfriendly environment for the Russians um, at, at this point. I mean, with the, the sheer mass of Ukrainian USV attacks alone, um, yeah, it's 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 not good. It's it's extremely unfriendly for, for their continued operations. Um, and I mean I, I, I think that hopefully they're starting to pick up on that. You know, if they don't, I'm I'm sure the Ukrainians will be glad to introduce them to additional novel munitions and you know novel means of attack or the same ones frankly um but i i, I think the russians eventually will get the message for, for for lack of a better term which all which all goes back to because when we think about it what does the black sea fleet offer in regards to Russian capabilities in Ukraine. And, you know, what we've seen thus far is its uh, capabilities to seize some of Ukraine's outlying islands, um, threaten trade, and also conduct uh, uh, PGM strikes via cruise missiles, right? Um, so at the end of the day, sinking the Black Sea Fleet or putting it out of commission doesn't make a massive impact on the situation on the ground. But what it does make is the conflict far more and continuously expensive for the Russians, right? Because at the end of the day, these are ships that are going to need to be replaced, regardless of how the conflict ends. Hmm. And when we look at a Russian economy that is growing a little bit after the initial fall from the sanctions, but nothing crazy, that's just another thing on the budget list that's going to have to be picked up later. And the longer the war goes on, the bigger that list becomes. No, certainly. And I, I mean, I, I, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet has, has obviously done things um, in the Black Sea. Granted, their impact has been, as you said, you know, marginal at best. I would, I would say that the main, you know, aspect of that was, or, or, or the main actions that they've actually committed that, that weren't, you know, caliber launches in, in the past few months have been a couple of vessel boarding operations in the western black sea um which you know just looking at the videos of those those were uh those were messy at best and and, and some of those operations were uh yeah very very amateurish um vbss stuff um and they haven't really done many since and yeah i i i definitely agree with austin on that on you know, it's more the longer term effects. I mean, they aren't going to be building any more new Rapuches, um at all. That's just that that's not going to happen. It's a long term. Genuinely, is the focus here, even beyond this conflict. Um, you, like you said, you can't replace these landing ships, and there are technically newer generation landing ships, but Russia has shown no want to produce those in large quantities and i mean the improved kilo goes without saying that loss is completely irreversible um so you've you've got a situation where the black sea fleet is more or less just sitting around and getting picked off one by one and that's tens of billions of dollars that russia won't be able to replenish anytime soon so they're probably getting to the point where they need to make a serious decision on where to position the fleet 
And I'm, at least in my opinion, I'm leaning more towards the possibility that in the not too near future, it, it's probably going to be out of the combat zone. Well, I mean, the, the Black Sea is the combat zone right now, and, and I wouldn't put it past the Ukrainians to also, you know, asymmetrically target Black Sea fleet assets outside of the Black Sea. Um, they, 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 you know, the Ukrainians have established some deep strike capabilities as seen by, um, you know, attacks up near Ostrov and Piskov. Um, and and I, I, I think that, you know one of the main reasons that they're holding on to to Sevastopol at this point is primarily for the hard dry dock access which again the Ukrainians just kind of uh erased as an an asset at least for right now um but if if you go and and one of the best things to do is is go look on a map um of of the other port facilities that the Russians have access to like in Novorossiysk um they don't have any hard dry dock space there they have floating dry docks only. Um, you look further down um, the coast towards Sochi. Um, no, no hard dry dock space. Um, and you know, then then you're then you're in Georgia, and and there there really is none of that hard ship maintenance facilities that they have in um, in Sevastopol. And and additionally, Sevastopol has massive weapons handling. Um, uh, uh facilities they have you know the i i think it's the um uh the 17th arsenal um which is is a incredibly large um uh, uh, uh weapons handling facility um you you also have the 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 or what is it the 758th uh logistics center which is you know f- massive fleet logistics um, so that's that's the other really big thing that Sevastopol is able to provide for the Black Sea Fleet is that logistics backing, is that um, ammunition, fueling capability, hard dry dock capability. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the Russians kind of refuse to give up on Sevastopol um, at this point. But I, I think you bring up an interesting little segue there, because when we're talking about supplies, we should also talk logistics. And as we've sort of mentioned before on this um, podcast, you know, there are three major ways to get supplies to the Crimean Peninsula. Number one is the Kerch Bridge. Number two is via larger landing ships or supply ships, like the Rapuchas, from uh, Russia proper. And the last is the land bridge uh, through Mariupol. And so if, as we've seen, Kerch Bridge is getting fairly consistently attacked, the Russian ability to safely um, maneuver shipping to Crimea is currently under threat. And then, you know, uh, three of a kind, the potential for the counteroffensive to continuously sort of impede land-based supplies to Crimea serves to technical, I believe your original point was the Russian situation in Crimea is becoming not quite fully, but more untenable. No, absolutely. And it it just impacts their long-term capabilities to actually conduct warfighting activities from Crimea, um, which... When looking at it, why did the Russians invade Ukraine, or why did the Russians invade Crimea in the first place? Um, it's because they didn't have friendly access anymore to the area. Um, you know, it 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 appeared to them that the Ukrainians were were shifting more focused on the West, and they they didn't believe they could control that anymore. So they they annexed Crimea um, and and occupied it to to retain that access. Um, and the Ukrainians have made it fairly clear that, you know, they aren't going to play that game. They aren't going to allow the Russians to maintain access to Crimea and, and, or, or maintain a reasonable level of access, um, where, you know, if you continue to place assets there, if you continue to hold meetings at your, your headquarters, we're going to blow them up. We're going to blow you up. Um, and I, I definitely think that is a very big impact to that Russian warfighting effort. I wanted to talk about Novorossiysk very briefly in regards to all this about logistics and dry dock capabilities. Something that was I was actually reading about pretty in depth recently was the fact that Novorossiysk was being eyed to be significantly uplifted prior to the invasion of Crimea. So this is nearly 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago. 
you have a situation where the Russians were looking to invest to give Novorossiysk those hard dry dock capabilities, greatly expanded as a port, but they opted instead to invest in Crimea once it was occupied. So I, I can imagine there are many people in Russia's naval command that are kind of looking at that potential decision that could have been made and regretting that it was not made. No, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it comes back, I guess, to that Russian attitude of, you know, why actually build our own port facilities when we can just, you know, invade our neighbor and take them? Um, which, that's that's that one's been going on for a while. Um, but I, I, I definitely think that there is a, a loss of capability coming from, from Sevastopol at this point. And at what point will the Russians realize that? I don't know. At what point will they reposition assets? Because even Novorossiysk isn't exactly safe, as seen by the Ukrainian long-range USV attack there, taking out a Rapucha, or, or at least severely damaging it. Um, and there, there is a level where, where you know, the Ukrainians might just switch to you know, hitting Novorossiysk regularly. Um, and and I, guess, I guess we'll see if that happens, but you know, the Russians may just try to continue to occupy Sevastopol and, and take the losses as they come. Does anyone want to talk about that great, great video of the Storm Shadow hitting the um, Black Sea Fleet headquarters? It's a very, very clear picture of the Storm Shadow, that's for sure. Just just a, a, a remarkably clear video. And and I know, you know, John's probably a bit more familiar with Brooch and, and sort of the whole Storm Shadow. Um, but just a, a remarkably clear video of, of the missile penetrating the roof, continuing through multiple floors, and, and exploding in either the middle or lower levels of the building. Um, just a, an, an incredibly effective strike. Yeah, and it, it kind of, it's interesting to, to watch that because in the immediate sort of um, time after some of these previous strikes, the information coming out of the, the Russian side of or Russian mill bloggers has generally been, you know, there was 15 missiles, there was 20 missiles, air defense shot down the majority of them, and then one got through. Uh, but in this video, you know, doesn't appear like there's any air defense active doesn't appear like it's anything more than that one storm shadow and it's very clear that it just nails its target yeah yeah it's, well it, it's from my perspective it's spectacular to see storm shadow in action in that way because what you've got to bear in mind is obviously that the main users of the storm shadow or, or the scalp as it's also known are obviously the british and french militaries and up until sort of handing them over to Ukraine to use in this conflict, the only times that we've ever seen Storm Shadow in use have been on French warships or British aircraft targeting uh, you know, Islamic State terrorists in Syria and Iraq. And generally speaking, I don't think there is any video footage of those missiles actually hitting their targets that's been publicly released in those conflicts. And so to now actually see the Storm Shadow in use, bearing in mind that at one point objections were raised to Storm Shadow because of the unit cost of each of the missiles, um, it, it's really good to see, certainly for the public, that this weapon system that we spent so long developing and that, ironically, we're, we're now in the process of looking to replace um, actually does exactly what it says on the tin and does it well. Something yeah, and that... I... oh, go ahead. No, I I was just going to talk about the fact that that it was integrated onto existing Ukrainian Su twenty fours. Um, just because <laughs> because when you I mean at the end of the day when you look at it the the Su twenty four you know like the F one eleven and Tornado are all quite, kind of in this you know family of strike fighters and and obviously the the Russians and Ukrainians were were held on to theirs longer than than anyone else, um, except maybe the Germans and theirs. Um, but it, it's just very interesting to see how apparently not not essentially plug and play it was, but um, the the integration of, of stealing tornado GR4 parts or or at least launch pylons and um, 
sort of strapping them to the the su-24 was definitely interesting um but but that whole very quick integrated capability is is always just fascinating to see and and it ended up being very effective and i kind of wanted to talk storm shadows performance in the wars thus far has been amazing and to see it in action performing exactly what as other john said what it's supposed to do what it's advertised as doing uh is amazing and in my i i would love to see taurus in action at some point with video footage um some people tend to mix those two up as very similar systems but uh, same family different roles um I would love to see Taurus in action and actually doing what it's advertised to do as well, because in my opinion, these two missiles are something that, you know, Western forces, NATO should hold on to, or if they are going to replace them, replace them with systems that are even more efficient at those roles um, mm -hmm. as, as hard penetrating munitions. Yeah, I, I definitely do think there was at least the the concept that, you know, cruise missiles were were a bit outdated after kind of the rise of stuff like Tor, Tunguska, you know, Pantsir, all this other stuff that was created to really knock down these systems. Um and and you know, it it, it might also have to do with the fact that the Russian airborne air defense is um not great. I mean their their AWOC's capabilities are kind of kind of a bit old there um and uh, I, I i do think that there there probably is that that level of you know you know air intercept being weak um and sorry just looking at it haha just got september 23rd imagery from a couple of hours ago come across my pipeline um so gonna be looking at that in a bit um but uh, I, I, I definitely do think that, you know, the Russians are in kind of a unique position where unlike the U.S. Air Force, which just kind of relied heavily on air intercept of targets, um, they they kind of rely on ground based intercept of targets. Um, so we'll we'll see what that ends up, you know, how that ends up going into into planning in the future. Um, but but obviously the Russians heavily invested in ground based interception and that has not really worked out well for them. And it's worth saying, obviously, John, you mentioned, you know, Storm Shadow and stuff replacement. Um, the UK and France are in the process of developing a replacement, um, which I think is planned to enter service just under a decade from now. Um, it, it's currently known as the Future Cruise Anti-Ship Weapon, uh, or Spear 5, um, but it's effectively going to be a similar size weapon to Storm Shadow, but capable of five times the speed of sound and a fair amount more range, I believe, is planned for it as well, as possibly a uh, detachable warhead. Okay, so yeah, it just it falls into the idea of being same same role just greatly improved which hmm. I, I i just think that if the british and french were thinking of getting rid of storm shadow in terms of operational capabilities i think this is definitely a wake-up call to keep it around uh, as an intermediate system yeah. Um, yeah at minimum storm shadow has proven to be an incredibly competent platform um for for you know even unsupported deep strikes into heavily defended areas. I mean, they, they got three out of eight missiles through into what's probably the most actively defended areas of Russia right now, or of Russian-occupied Ukraine right now. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's big. That's, that's really big. Unless Rybar is lying, but, you know, that's... <laughs> We've we've seen it before, but you know they they generally seem to be not entirely plugged into Russian command, but they're they're a leak outlet, um, and and we'll we'll see where that goes, um, and I I know I'm I'm looking at the video again, but I I just kind of wanted to circle back to to the whole warhead and and individual damage, maybe maybe not as much how it got there, 
there, but but what it did after arrival. Um, it it really messed up that building, you know, multiple multiple floors, you know, cratered basically. Um, a large chunk of the building basically just ejected off to the side. Um, you know, is this is this a confirmation of the capabilities of Brooch? Yeah, I mean that that video you shared of at least one of the missiles, sort of, you see it descend at some speed, hit the building which is already billowing with black smoke, and just the fact that what is obviously a concrete structure seems to just disintegrate, um, from from the force and, and obviously the the internal explosion that follows, it, it's quite spectacular and it, it it is as you say. It's a credit to the, the brooch system um, that Storm Shadow is famous for. Um, and I, I was just rereading some, some of my notes over Storm Shadow. Um, it's worth noting that the French are believed to have only ever ordered 500 of the missile and the British somewhere between 700 and 1,200 of the missile. So bearing in mind that probably over the last 10 years or so between the two countries, they've probably fired no more than sort of 70 to 100 of them uh, in combat again Iraq and Syria I'd be interested to know how much of the stockpile have been given to Ukraine and how much is being kept because as, as John rightly says the British and, and French governments have to be looking at Storm Shadow and the way it's performing and thinking actually yeah this, this is a capability we want to keep or, or there's, you know, I, I imagine this discussion has probably gone on, you know, at the MOD of, well, these targets are going to hit, you know, Russian targets anyway, you know, no matter what the war may be. Um, maybe we don't need to procure more. They, I would imagine they, they, they have to feel confident in how low that stockpile is going to go and... They would also have to feel confident that America can lend some of its own crews and long-range glide systems in the case of if there were to be some sort of situation where the Europeans would need to pull from that stockpile. Um, there's a lot of logistical concerns there, I would imagine, but I, I, I do think the system has a future in Europe. And if it doesn't, there there are other European options with similar performance that are in production. So it's a it's an interesting situation. I mean, we like like I said, Taurus is a slightly different system, but it is a system that's relatively newer in terms of its production runs. So well, we'll just do, have to wait this, and see. Do the Germans even still retain the capability to produce Taurus right now? That's an excellent that's a, question. That's a that's a good question that we probably don't have the answer to, and I I don't even want to guess if the Swedes are also on the same page with that. But I, I would trust the Swedes to be more capable than the Germans at that point. Yeah, the Swedes are always making interesting weapon systems and and are fairly active in production. So I I wouldn't put it past them to to heavily retain the capabilities of production. Um, it's just. I, I don't think I would put it past the Germans to have sunsetted some of the capabilities there, um, um, potentially for production. I think that that does. I think when we talk about capabilities and restocks, right, we do have some recent things to talk about too, right? Um, we're looking at the United States once again upping its shell production. We're seeing Denmark. Uh, I believe they declared interest. I don't know if they've done it yet, but they're trying to purchase back one of their munitions plants from, uh, I believe, a Spanish defense company. Um, so that on one hand. On the other hand, we still really haven't seen fully what was promised from the Germans. I, I believe they promised, what was it, 100 billion euros to their own defense budget. Has that been approved? Um but on the one hand, we're seeing some countries make solid concrete steps towards putting themselves on a footing where they can replenish their own stocks while continuing to give uh, munitions to Ukraine. Um, kudos to primarily Denmark on that. Whereas, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, British John, 
but I believe the UK recently also um, stated that it would be uh, continuing to, um, what's the term, lower its defense budget. What do we sort of make on the Europeans in general, some of which trying to up their capacities, others claiming they're going to lower their capabilities in regards to continuing these supply lines to Ukraine? The, the, the UK's position is a bit of a difficult one because, yes, at the moment we are still, for some reason, cutting our defence budget. Um, the British Army is due to shrink again um, over the next couple of years um, following the most recent defence review um, to a point where I think we're going to have the, the smallest number of troops we've had since World War II, um, which is quite, you know, quite a big deal. Unfortunately, as well... What we've got an issue with in the UK at the moment is that a lot of our defence industry has gone um, through sort of the last 30 or 40 years of, of large neglect on, on the part of government when it comes to making purchases of, of military equipment. So our shell manufacturing capability is not what it once was. Um, our, our cruise missile production ability is, is no doubt diminished. Um, at the minute, we are obviously having to outsource to uh, foreign companies, um, particularly American ally companies, for um, small arms and, and, and other equipment like that. Um, and that, unfortunately, the, the, the damage that's been done to the British defence industry is not something that's going to be repaired overnight. And at the moment, what we're finding is that the war in Ukraine and, and the rate at which they are going through equipment and ammunition is something that the United Kingdom's government has just not thought about when it comes to whether or not we'd be able to resupply the British armed forces in a time of conflict. Unfortunately there's also not an awful lot of movement in government at the moment to fix that matter. Um, obviously we've had the new Defence Secretary Grant Shapps who has almost no background in defence um, and he's had very little to say on the matter. Um, the Prime Minister's obviously not doing an awful lot of good at the moment and seems to be having a lot of trouble fighting with his own party um, and unfortunately I don't see that changing anytime soon despite what we're seeing in Ukraine um, I think it's worth probably at this point mentioning Poland um, obviously Poland has massively stepped up their purchases of new military equipment in the last few months um, and there was a, a meme I shared on, on Twitter the other week, if anyone hasn't seen it already, it's pinned on my uh, Twitter account, um, where Poland has ordered a ridiculous number of HIMARS systems from the US. Um, the joke being that Ukraine's managed to use 20 of them to near enough wipe out uh, Russia's logistics capability, as we already mentioned, and Poland's gone ahead and ordered over 400 of the system. Um but I think while we're talking Poland, maybe it's worth also mentioning the sort of the argument and the, the the bit of conflict now that's occurring between Poland and Ukraine, diplomatically speaking, um, over the issues with the grain shipments. I will actually chime in on this because it's a conversation that I have had with uh, people currently involved in you know, overseas diplomacies and transatlantic relations and whatnot. Uh, the, the, the sentiment that I'm getting and one that I genuinely do agree with, and I might be entirely wrong on this, is that this is just an electoral scuffle. Uh, Poland is entering an electoral period. So, you know, they're stepping up rhetoric for at-home reasons that I suspect will potentially be drawn back within two to three months maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Again, I might be entirely wrong, but that is that is generally what it does look like to me because it was just a complete 180 um, that doesn't really make entirely too much sense when it comes to armaments uh, transfer. The grain deal, I perfectly understand the, the issue there, but uh, the armament issues, I, I do think, are rooted in electoral reasoning, at least for now. There may be more behind the scenes that we don't understand. I, I think the one... Sorry, go on. I think the one reality that everyone should take away from this war is that 
war is going to take a lot of stockpiles um and and especially any modern conflict is going to require a lot of munitions a lot of people a lot of platforms um you can make your platforms far more survivable like western ones um in order to keep your people alive or keep more of your people alive um but you can't get over the fact that you're going to be spending a lot of munitions and you're going to be spending a lot of platforms um in order to achieve the goals in any campaign um and i think maybe western countries kind of forgot about that since the end of the cold war um with kind of a race to not necessarily disarm but to to scale back um and i i i think that that will continue or hopefully western nations will take that lesson away from this war yeah i would agree and i think simultaneously a really good indicator towards what um american john was saying is that Poland is in an electoral year, right? Polish elections for the past two cycles have been quite contentious. Um, what we've seen so far before this grain spat has been large-scale material support to Ukraine. Um, we're looking at a Polish defense industry that is procuring large, if not massive, quantities of weaponry. Uh, and so I think on both angles, right, from the Ukrainian side of things, obviously it makes sense that Zelensky is going to be eaved about, um, you know, Ukrainian grain shipments not entering markets at prices he feels like they should. I mean, not only is Ukraine at war, but the Ukrainian economy, and particularly the Ukrainian agricultural industry, has suffered immensely during this conflict. And, uh, you know, on the other side of things, we're looking at a Poland that up until this point has been very um, willing to supply Ukraine, while also replenishing its own stocks. So I think the moment this election cycle is over, irregardless of who wins, I think we'll see a resumption of those friendly ties between the two. In fairness, and, and I will say this, on the 21st, so two days ago, Duda went out and said that Poland will continue supplying Ukraine weapons in accordance with signed contracts, and that they will maybe or he was kind of unclear transfer more polish equipment after it had received additional u.s and korean supplied equipment um so i and, and then Zelensky went out to say you know that that he was grateful to the polish nation um and i i i i think the spat is primarily over at this point though i think a lot of people some of which definitely have malign intentions are continuing to push it. Because I, I imagine the Russians are definitely trying to uh, broaden that wedge. Oh, no, I completely agree with that. Um, the whole thing about existing contracts being respected makes sense, especially considering a lot of those are still queued up for potentially another one to two years. Um. Uh, again, like I, I I'll agree with Austin here. Regardless of who wins the Polish elections, I think the Polish are immediately going to promise that future contracts are very much open to being agreed on. Um, but like I said, you know, you still have like one to two years of queued up contracts that need to be put through between Poland and Ukraine. It's not too big of an issue, like you said. A lot of malign actors. Uh, kind of try to exacerbate these issues and make them a bigger deal than they actually end up being. So, and the, and they're, they're the kind of people where they're a vocal minority. So even though it's like maybe five or six people talking about it, they're talking about it so much that you see it everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, look, Twitter is going to be Twitter and that will continue. I am I'm absolutely sure that the Russians are pushing for the issue on social media um, to to make a or, or to to push either political leaders or individuals into believing that it is more of an issue than it actually is. Yeah, full agreement for me. Yeah, it. it... These issues are always not as they initially seem. I'll put it that way. Um, 
and on that note, did we did we have anything we additionally wanted to talk about? I know I know we had an episode just a like a week ago, right? Am I am I not? Yeah. Did I like completely miss a week? Um, is it worth just briefly going over the Armenia Azerbaijan flare up again? Um, I yeah. am honestly less familiar with that right now. Yeah, I know that it ended very quickly. I'm a little confused as to the situation. I will be completely honest. Like, is our stock still an entity or is it not? Because I see that Russians are still bringing in supplies to our stock, even though our stock should technically now be part of Azerbaijan. So I'm not, I'm not entirely up to date with that situation. I, I can break it down. Um, so as of right now, Artsakh as an entity is probably not going to exist in the next month. Um, I mean, it, okay, I gotta be careful with my words here, because, again, when we talk about Armenia-Azerbaijan, we're talking about centuries of ethnic conflict, and words are very important, housing frames are very important. I think what's important to note is that even despite casualties being taken, um, we haven't seen a serious response from Russia concerning the uh, killing of its deputy commander of the keeping forces there. Um, Additionally, uh, we've seen initial indications that, you know, large amounts of ethnic Armenians are attempting to flee uh, from Artsakh into Armenia. However, you know, in between Artsakh and Armenia proper is areas, uh, areas of Azerbaijan. And some of the rhetoric we've seen from Azeri channels regarding uh, Armenians in Artsakh has been uh, extremely concerning, to say the least. Um, I think we all remember the last war in 2020 and depictions of war crimes committed, uh, not just against soldiers, but against civilians. And so I think the fear right now is that we'll be looking at, at the very least, forced deportations of Armenians from Artsakh. Uh, at the worst, we'll see videos of civilians being under direct threat. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see, number one, how the Russian peacekeeping contingent there responds to direct threats itself if they're capable of protecting civilian life, should evacuation be necessary, should they be warranted, should they be wanted by the local population. Um, and it, additionally, it'll be interesting to see if Azerbaijan makes good on its promises for, you know, the safety of the civilians there. That being said, I don't put faith the Azeri promises thus far of actually ensuring the civilian population there gets uh, fair treatment. Yeah, I, I know that the Russian influence in the region has certainly not just waned, but kind of been destroyed um, due to their ongoing campaign in Ukraine, um, which has significantly impacted their ability to actually conduct peacekeeping operations, as we've pretty clearly seen, um, which has, to, to a degree, driven the Armenians much more towards the U.S. and the West as a whole. Um, and and I, I expect that to to equally, you know, potentially drive the russian presence out of armenia as a whole yeah and we're looking at an armenia that's under pretty intense political pressure at home as well um there's been speculation that the russians are driving protests against oh, i'm forgetting his name but the prime minister due to his recent sort of turn towards the west um that being said again looking at the the last conflict the azeri um use of in that conflict really put the Armenian military on the back foot. And so the Armenian government right now is really in between a rock and a hard place because on one end, you have a very large portion of the populace who wants to go fight for Artsakh. They believe that, you know, the civilians in Artsakh need to be defended. While also looking at an Armenian military that's still very much recovering from that last war. Yeah, and, you know, obviously the allegations of genocide in the area, um, and and not just that, but, but the, the somewhat credible uh, uh, accusations as a whole, um, definitely paint a, uh, a, 
a damning picture for the international community as a whole if they're to take no action on something like this. Um, especially if the local population is, you know, chased out, expelled, um, primarily due to their their ethnicity. A hundred percent. I mean, for those who have been studying either international relations, defense policy for the last couple of decades, I mean, we all remember the cries of R2P or right to protect during um, the Yugoslav wars. And so for the international community to sort of sit on the chair of R2P for so long, and now in this case, very quiet about what looks at the very least uh, large scale potential for crimes against humanity, the cleansing, genocide, so on and so forth, um, is concerning to say the very least. Yeah, and, and at minimum, we've seen fairly credible examples of, you know, targeting of civilian, maybe not civilians yet per se, but but civilian property. Um, there there are credible reports of that in, in the area. Um, and, you know, it, it is a ceasefire and, and the area is still primarily controlled by local forces, but, but I expect that to potentially change. Um, as and and if you look at Azerbaijani rhetoric around this, you know, they've they've literally made official government statements, and you know, even the the postage stamp, the the, the cleansing the area, that that is so so close to you know what one would call genocidal, you know, language that that it would not be surprise or a stretch to see additional actions taken yeah absolutely the rhetoric is concerning the positioning is concerning it's it's most if not all indicators point negative right now and what's going to be important is to over the next couple of weeks seeing how that materializes because the initial stuff that we've seen has been again extremely concerning yeah, I, I, I just, I, I cannot see, or it would be hard for me to see a situation where this ends in a reasonable manner. And I, I, I just, I, I, I hope to see it end well. Um, my, my confidence is not incredibly highly placed, though, um, due, to, due to language and actions already taken. Yeah, if the international community doesn't make some sort of a statement or a, a stand of any kind here. Uh, it's not only worrying for uh, the ethnic Armenians in our stock, but I think it goes without saying that once this region is incorporated into Azerbaijan, that the next step for the country, and they've made it very clear with their government statements, the next step is a corridor um, to its enclave. And that's a whole other, uh, just confusing situation there because some Azerbaijanis. History. The recent history of humanitarian corridors has been very fraught. I'm sure we all remember the quote-unquote humanitarian corridor from Mariupol, which was supposed to go to Ukraine and ended up going directly to Russia. Um, and then if we if we want to look at a. a a last case of large scale, um, or a more uh, recent case, not more recent, sorry, less recent case of ethnic conflict. If you look at the humanitarian corridors that popped up fairly often during the Yugoslav Wars, those were very fraught with the uh, abilities of peacekeepers to actually enforce them, as well as uh, with um, hostile militaries tampering with them, or hostile forces, I should say. Yeah, I, uh, it, it's rough. It, it, yeah. it is definitely, definitely disappointing and, sorry, disappointing, disappointing is an understatement. It is terrifying to see sort of the, the, the components for something like this come together. Um, and and it, it, it's extremely disturbing to see the rhetoric that's already in place. And it, it is extremely, extremely worrying to see the direction that this is moving in. And I think on that note, um, 
John, did you want to touch on any major news items this week? Um, I, I know there was a bit less because we only had a week. We're, we're, we're making up for like the month-long gap by doing two in a row. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything else majorly newsworthy that we haven't already covered. So um... Once again, the UN General Assembly gets thrown under the bus. Uh, what the heck do they even do? Well, I think they, they, throw, um, they talk. I, th I think they throw themselves under the bus an awful lot, in fairness. But um, on that note, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Um, stay tuned for uh, upcoming episodes. We've got a couple more episodes now planned for October and November, um, and then we are going to be hosting our annual uh, OSINT Bunker Christmas Special Edition. Uh, in December, which you can all look forward to. Um, at the time of recording, we have, I think, nine or ten guests due to join us um, from across numerous previous episodes, uh, including this one. Um, so that should be a very interesting uh, sort of roundup for the end of the year. Um, and we will also be uh, discussing uh, a little closer to the time um, the future of the OSINT Bunker podcast as we move towards 2024 so uh, yeah stay tuned for that and thank you very much for listening um, John thank you very much for joining us mate yeah, thank you for having me uh, and this has been the OSINT Bunker podcast season 5 episode 10